When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. From 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York City, please enjoy this podcast edition of Late Night with Seth Meyers. Here at Late Night, we love authors. And on today's show, you'll hear Seth's interviews with two great writers, Jacqueline Woodson and C.J. Hauser. They also both take a few additional questions backstage exclusively for this podcast. Now let's get to the show. Our guest is a National Book Award-winning author whose new novel, Red at the Bone, is on sale now. Please welcome to the show, Jacqueline Woodson, everyone. I'm good. I'm How so are you? I'm so happy to have you here. I'm wonderful. Uh, so I want to ask about the book. This is a book that is written from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. It also deals with some moments uh, of great historical significance, like the um, the Tulsa uh, race massacre and 9-11. What was the impetus for putting those things in the book? Well, I think those were two very traumatic experiences in our country, and also in the existence of black lives. And so when I started writing the book, one of the reasons I wanted to put the Tulsa race massacre in there was I hadn't heard of it until I was in my 20s. And it was huge. So the idea that it wasn't in any of my books, um, fiction or nonfiction, and that this um, thing happened that changed the narrative of the black experience was really important for me to try to figure out how to write fiction around it to bring it to light. And it's really nice when things like that, moments like that, find their way into art because otherwise, unless you're reading history books, you miss them entirely. Yeah. You uh, have written 21 novels. Uh, You write from different perspectives uh, of race, sexuality, gender, age. What is it about writing that you, or what is it about your writing that it becomes wider when you use those different perspectives? That's such a good question. I think I... Bore easily. <laughs> I, you know, I get bored easily. And I, the idea of just staying in one perspective or even writing for just one age group, I would lose my mind. And I think that there's so many important stories at every age in our lives. So I feel like I want to tell them and I want to tell them from all points of view. I also write realistic fiction. So the idea of writing realistic fiction from just one single perspective would bore me. So I know you would be bored and the rest of the world would too. So I have to move around a lot. Uh, I think it's important not to have a boring, uh, boring titles either. Red at the Bone uh, <laughs> yes. is, is gripping. Do you come up, when, when do the titles find you or where do you find the titles? 
Sometimes I know the titles even before I began writing the book. And for Red at the Bone, it took some time to get to because I had to kind of figure out what the story was trying to say and how it was saying it and what did it mean to be having all these different characters telling this story um, and what were they getting at and you know, it hit me that they were all becoming in some way. They were all red at the bone. They were all still not quite done yet. And I think that's the question as humans. We ask ourselves all the time, where are we in this moment? And where will we be when we leave this world? And, and until we leave the world, we are all very red at the bone. You, um, you had some, uh, over the course, of your year and, uh, course of your career, excuse me, um, and all these different books, you have had some censorship. Uh, you've had books that have been challenged. Can you explain what you mean by that? It means that people don't like them and don't want other people to read them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And how does that manifest? How do they try to stop other people from reading? Well, they take them off of um, school library shelves. They take them out of classrooms. I remember I didn't even know I was challenged or censored. I got a call from Judy Bloom, and um, she wanted me to be in an By the way, I, let me just say, as far as name dropping goes, that's as good as it is. That's a really good one, yeah. Imagine picking up your phone and her being on the other end yeah. of it, right? So, yeah. Um, and, and she was doing an anthology called The Places That I Never Meant To Be, and she asked me to be in it because it was an anthology for censored writers, and I'm like, I've never been censored, and she's like, oh, yes, you have. <laughs> so, and it was wild because you don't know it all the time, right? I don't know that people in maybe Idaho aren't reading my books and that someone sent a memo around to get all the Jacqueline Woodson books off the shelves or whatever or this particular title. Um, I don't know until someone tells me or tweets about it. Yeah. Well, that's scary to think that you feel very comfortable that your art's out there and then you're finding out that it's being slowly taken away from people. Well, you know, that's all you have to do is censor a book to have people running for it. Yeah. So. Right. That's the jackpot right there. Yeah. Um, well, let me, on that case, let me just say, no one should read <laughs> this garbage! Um, you, uh, you have two children. I do. Um, do, they, do they want your help? Having a writer as a mom, do they want your help when they write? Um, one would think they would. My daughter is applying for colleges now, yeah. and she basically is like, Mommy, do not read my college essays. And I'm there with my pen, just like, let me at it, Toshi, please let me at it. Um, but no, they, they kind of like me to stay far away from it. But they, they you know, and they're pretty down low about me being Jacqueline Woodson, their uh -huh. mom, so. How do they, uh, how do you know that they're down low? Because I guess a lot of their <laughs> friends have probably read your books because again, you've written for so many different ages. Yeah, my, my daughter had, her, her high school, one of my books was assigned, so then she was really mortified. But I remember when she was, um, <laughs> She was in middle school and her friend was holding her cell phone and um, I texted her and her friend's like, Jacqueline Woodson texted you? You know Jacqueline Woodson? <laughs> and, I'm like, and she came home and she was so excited to tell me this story. I'm like, really? You're that down low that they don't even know I'm your mom? <laughs> uh, also, just enter it in your phone as mom. <laughs> uh, that'll avoid that problem right there. Uh, uh, people see my phone, they're like, you know my mom? Um, I want to uh, well, congratulate you. Uh, you won a very serious award, the Astrid Lindgren Award. Yes. And this is a, 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 a lot of money. It's, it's uh, half a million dollars. Um, yes. And uh, can you talk about what you're going to do with that money and, and what the award is for? Um, the award was, is, is given by the Swedish government. So I had to go to Sweden. And, um, and it's given in honor of Astrid Lindgren, who in Sweden is actually on their money. Like, yeah. 
she's on the money, um, literally. And, and so you go there and get it. And I'm using the money to start a writing colony for uh, a, a, an artist colony for artists of color, for visual artists, um, um, poets and writers, and composers in Brewster, New York. That's wonderful. That is really, really cool. Hey, thank you so much for being thank here. It's you. been just a delight to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. It's wonderful. Red at the Bone, available wherever books are sold. We'll be right back, everybody. Hi, everyone. It's Sarah from Late Night. I'm here with Jacqueline Woodson. Thanks for doing this. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. It was a really great interview. Thank you. You briefly got to talk about the Baldwin for the Arts. Which um, I love if you could just give a little bit more specifics about it. When I first started out as a writer, the place that changed my life was a place called the McDowell Colony in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And it was the first artist colony I had ever, ever spent time at. And my dream was to create this kind of environment for other artists. And I was in my 20s at the time, and it seemed like it was never going to happen. So when I got this um, big cash flow from the <laughs> Swedish government, I decided I was going to start a colony called Baldwin for the Arts, as you said, named for James Baldwin. Of course, there'll be an Astrid Lindgren wing somewhere. Yes. And it's going to be for artists of color, mainly writers, poets, not like poets aren't writers, but visual artists and composers. And it's going to be a place they can come anywhere from two weeks to eight weeks to have uninterrupted creative time. We provide all their meals. We're going to bring basket lunches to their door so that they basically don't have to stop working. In the evening, they'll gather together to have dinner with the other creative people and be able to talk about their work. And I think the important thing for that is even when we are artists, sometimes we don't have an artist community around us and we right. have to go back into the real world and kind of leave that art behind. When will it be your first class, do you think? Or so your first our first artists are coming in January. And we have one um, structure already built, one guest house where they can work. And th we're starting the building of the outer spaces. We have a huge three-story barn that we're renovating. And we have some other outbuildings that we're renovating. So you live not, not too far from that in Brooklyn. Yes. And you grew up in Bushwick? Yes. And you live in Park Slope. So... Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the difference that you've seen in the way that neighborhoods have changed in the time that you've lived there and sort of what that means to you as a writer and how you maybe capture that in your mm -hmm. own writing? So when I was growing up in Bushwick, it was um, predominantly black and Latino. It was on the edge of white flight. So there had been an Polish, Irish, Italian communities, and they were moving out. They were moving to Long Island, upstate, anywhere to get away from the black and Latinos. And so then as I was growing up, it was a very kind of um, tight-knit black and Latino neighborhood. And then now it's become, now I always say the great-grandchildren of the white flighters are moving back into Bushwick and quote-unquote discovering it, which, you know, they the Lenape were there first. And I see that in Park Slope, too. When I first came to Park Slope, its nickname was Dyke Slope because there were so many queer women there. And, and it, was a, it was a huge um, Spanish population along Fifth Avenue, all these mom and pop shops, all these bodegas. And that changed. And so now Fifth Avenue is all fancy restaurants and, and, and expensive <laughs> clothing stores. And so it's a bummer. It's a bummer to see people get pushed out of neighborhoods. It's a bummer to see neighborhoods become more antiseptic because they become so much more homogenous. It's a bummer that people don't know each other and don't speak to each other. And um, and so 
but as a writer, <laughs> it's it's always new material because the neighborhoods are constantly changing. So you could step foot in Park Slope in 1980 and it's a completely different Park Slope than it was in 1960 or than it is in the aughts. So there's a lot of fodder just in that one borough for me as a writer. For people who move there and, you know, I think some of that changeover due to population or gentrification or whatever it is, is inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. Some of it. But do you think the best way to sort of move forward is to, I think you said something to me about being able to remember and acknowledge. I think it is so important to acknowledge the people who were there before us. And whenever I walk into a room when I'm doing a reading, I try to remember the indigenous people in that space. Like we know the Lenape were the people here in New York. And I know, you know, in Bushwick, I wasn't the first person there. I wasn't the first population. But I do think that remembering that history is so important. And I think that's why I get so sad when um, people say they're discovering a place. It's like you weren't the first person there. You aren't the first people there. And I also think it's so interesting that that history gets lost in that lack of remembering. And um, with the loss of that history comes repetition, right? You know, the thing we remember the bad stuff we did, so we don't do it again. And I think that um, thinking about who was there before, how they lived in that space, who they became, all of that's important. And I know when I was writing Another Brooklyn, at the beginning of the book, I write for Bushwick, um, 1970 to 1990 in memory, because I want the reader to know this is a this is a time past and this is a pace, a place past. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist as it did at that time and it never will again. And that's loss. Well, maybe you'll be able to do that, something like that at Baldwin Art Center, just for like the history of that place for the people that are there. Yeah, it's an interesting space because it was the um, the property was owned by a spy during the Revolutionary War. So I'm sure oh, he was cool. on both sides. I'm getting you up there. Yeah, I'm coming. <laughs> yeah. Good. I'm so Don't excited. think I forgot about that yeah, offer. No, no, I'm going to email <laughs> you. Okay, good. Thank you so much for doing this. It was oh, a pleasure having you here. Thanks, Sarah. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Our guest is an award-winning writer whose new novel, Family of Origin, was published this summer and is available now. Please welcome to the show, C.J. Hauser, everyone. Thank you for having me. So I uh, I will admit, I first became aware of your work with this uh, short story you wrote in uh, the Paris Review called The Crane Wife. Yes. It's about a trip you took. It is, uh, it's personal, it's not fiction. Uh, and what made you both take the trip that you wrote about and then decide to write about said trip? Yeah, so I took the trip because I was writing a book that involved 
field scientist studying birds, and all of the scientists in my novel uh, were shuffling around great stacks of papers and saying, hmm, and they didn't seem like very good scientists. <laughs> so I went to figure out what actual scientists looked like and did. Um, and then I wanted to write about it because I want people to save the whooping cranes. And <laughs> as I started writing it, I realized that I was leaving out the part where I had called off a wedding a week or two before uh, and that it was impossible to write the essay without including it. So when you, as a fiction writer, you know, basically write this nonfiction piece about your personal situation, like, is that a tough hurdle for you to get over and, and insofar as what you're sharing with people? Yeah, I, I had some hesitations about it. I had some people read it ahead of time, but I think what was important for me with the essay was that it's not about, I don't know how a relationship went wrong, but it was sort of about how the call was coming from the inside of the house and I was the problem with a lot of things and I wanted to unpack that. Um, and the Paris Review is like a dream publication, but I kind of anticipated it would be like sharing a story at a dinner party of your friends, and then it wound up being like I was screaming Stella in the street, so I did not anticipate that, uh, so I could not have prepared for that. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, I read the book after, and obviously it became very clear to me why you went uh, to study these field scientists. This, as you said, is about a bunch of people who are studying a specific kind of bird. Yes. Um, you, what was it that you found out, like, going and spending time with that kind of scientist that, that informed your writing of them in the book? I mean, not to be... A bummer about it, but science is really slow and really boring a lot of the time. But it is so important that we do it, and it's a very beautiful kind of way. I don't know to be in the world, like to spend that time on the Gulf for me in this sort of meditative state, counting wolf berries and crabs. Um, it, it really taught me a lot about who I was and the work that people are doing every day. Yeah, uh, there to seems to be an inherent it. patience involved in it. Oh that yeah. Maybe most writers I know don't have. Did it feel like a difference for you to, to take your writer's brain and have to slow it down to just observing oh, yeah. as opposed to commenting on? I was looking for the story the whole time, and the story is, here's another wolfberry. And so uh, I think that that was really humbling for me, and I think that that's why it took a while. I didn't write about the trip till a couple of years afterwards because I needed to figure out why it was still in my head and why it still meant so much to me. This uh, In the book, you talk about a group of people who are reversalists mm -hmm. in that they believe evolution is going backwards. Yes. Where did this idea come from? Where did you get that seed? So, misanthropy writ large, I work <laughs> in academia. Um, I think that, I don't know, I am a child of very optimistic baby boomers, and I would not change being raised by optimistic baby boomers for anything. But there's a lot of trashing of millennials going on. There's a lot of millennials killed the napkin industry and literature and everything. <laughs> and I just felt like I can imagine people thinking that everything's getting worse. Generationally, it's getting worse. Every day, it's getting worse. And I wanted to think about what sort of people, I don't know, feel that way. How do you get that low? And I was getting that low. And I sort of wanted to call myself on thinking everything was garbage to find a better answer, I hope. You, uh, <laughs> I, another place where I imagine optimism is very helpful is uh, for writers. And you are a, a teacher. You teach at Colgate. And uh, I would imagine students, especially writing students, there yeah. uh, is a sense of frustration and how hard writing can be when you haven't started it or when you've started it and you don't like it. Uh, you, um, you use totems to inspire your writers. Yeah. Can you explain that real quick? I do, but first I have to reach into my pocket just okay, for a minute. Okay, so this is, so this is, uh, <laughs> is it a little chicken? He's a little chicken. And so you give this to your writing students? And, uh, and what does it represent? So the idea is that um, I think there's a lot of stuff that goes around about writing practice and how precious people are. We're like, I have to wake up at five in the morning. I have to drink this coffee. I have to be in this chair. And I think that's not helpful because I think a lot of the time 
we're broken, we're struggling, you're trying to fit it in whenever you can. I wrote most of my first novel in bodegas on lunch break. So the idea is that when they graduate, they take their tiny chicken, and whenever he is on the desk, it is a writing desk. And it doesn't matter if it is sort of a break room for the job that they have, if it's a desk in sort of a house with a million roommates in a place that they're regretting moving. <laughs> wherever they are, they put it on the desk, and that's what makes it a writing desk. That's them. fantastic. And I can keep this? Yes, this is your chicken. That is very kind of you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Congrats on the book. Thank it's wonderful. So I really appreciate it. CJ Hauser, everybody. Family of Origin is available now wherever books are sold. Hi everyone, it's Sarah from Late Night. I'm here with CJ Hauser. Thanks for doing this. I am very happy to be doing this. I just want to do a little detour because you said you're a big podcast person. Yes, I am. Which podcast do you listen to besides... You know this show. So obviously, <laughs> uh, Reply All is a thing that I love, and it's like human interest stories, but they're always about what it means to be a person who lives in the time of the internet. Um, and they also have this thing called Super Tech Support, where if two have a really weird technical problem, they will solve it for you, no matter how strange it is. I've actually been trying to get on there because I have a problem. Um, and there's this other one called The Ballad of Billy Balls by Io Tillett oh, Wright. I started that one. Oh my god, yeah. are you finished yet? No, I haven't finished. It just keeps getting stranger each time you listen to an episode like you think you know what the podcast is and then it changes again yeah did you listen to homecoming no and that one is scripted right mm, yes scripted and it was then made into an amazon show no i have it's to it's pretty listen. spectacular because it's told through mostly scripted but phone calls and recorded therapy sessions oh and it takes place in a i don't want to ruin it but it's essentially an institution for people who have come back from the war and are struggling, and then there's a, an element of evil in That's there. so up my alley. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. You talked on the show about taking this trip to study the whooping crane yeah. in Texas. I wanted to know how you initially heard about these trips even existing. Yes, so it's my wonderful Aunt Ronnie who had been on a bunch of them growing up and she was always coming to family Thanksgiving with like totems she had brought back after studying the dung beetles in the wilderness. Um, and so when I knew I needed to find a way to go on an expedition to do actual field work, I looked up Earthwatch, which is the organization that she was always going on trips with. Mm -hmm. um, and sure enough, they had one with coastal birds and that's why. I wound up with whooping cranes. Do you think you'll do another one? I absolutely will do another one. And I'm actually, um, they're a little bit interested in having me come to run a writing component as well, because the whole idea is that if people know about the creatures, the forest, the whatever is being studied on the particular expedition, that that knowledge is part of what helps to promote people saving the species or the area. And so I think that writing, I think writing can be a really powerful tool to do that. So, absolutely. Yeah. And you show that, I think, in the characters in the book as well. Yeah, I hope yeah. so. And then I also wanted to know on the show, you talked a little bit about that you had this interest in generational guilt and change. Yeah. Can you tell me about how this book initially started? Yes. So... This book started with a book that does not exist, which is a very, very bad post-apocalyptic novel about robots. Uh, it was also a Shakespeare adaptation. <laughs> there were many things wrong with it, but I was sort of bummed out. And I wasn't even bummed out because of Trump. I was like bummed out during the Obama administration. Like things weren't even that bad. And I was just bummed out about the world. And I was thinking about writing a book about, I don't know, the, all of the problems we are facing in our time and where they might lead. Um, but the book failed because there was no chance for anything to change. Uh, and I was just rubbing the reader's face and how badly we'd done. And so when that book died, um, I took a step back and I was like, what if I wrote about people, not people where the world has actually ended, but who think that the world is going to end? And they're maybe wrong, but they're sort of, they've gotten mentally to that place 
And what if they were sort of a science cult too? And that's where the idea for the reversalists came. Do you find that you need to understand the motivation behind the characters to have the book succeed? Yes. And I don't always know that at the, I I seldom know that at the beginning. I think I know one or two things about main characters, but there's certainly characters in the book who over the course of writing it, I came to understand why they were on the island, why they remained on the island and the sort of texture and nature of their misanthropy, I guess. That's great. Well, I love the book and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for reading and for talking to me. Late Night with Seth Meyers airs weeknights on NBC at 12.35, 11.35 Central. Original music on the Late Night podcast is by the HE Band. Don't forget to follow the handle Late Night Seth on social media and tell your friends to subscribe to the Late Night podcast wherever they get their podcasts. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.